but we haven't had a chance to catch up. I don't know how much self-hosting there is in this, but I'm curious to hear your take on the Apple Vision Pro and if you're tempted to get one. I think it's the perfect device for RVers, actually. <laughs> yeah. Those of you that live in, what, 200 or less square feet who are constantly moving crap around and... Yeah, I think if I was uh, if I was living in a tin can, I might I might consider one. Quite quite hard actually. Yeah, I mean it's definitely odd to say, but it seems like it might be more practical than trying to like come up with some sort of crazy monitor mount that I could stand up and break down every time I'm recording a show and moving around. I know it's so damn frustrating because when you get into the Apple ecosystem, the network effect is strong, right? The apps, iMessage, Notes calendar, all that, it disincentivizes self-hosting. And then the intricacies of the iOS platform also kind of disincentivize self-hosting, at least somewhat. Yes. And so I feel like uh, an Apple Vision Pro is kind of going to be one of the biggest enablers of the Apple ecosystem because you're going to want everything synced. You know, it's a big investment. You're going to want that to pay off. So that's the big red flag for me. I mean, we spent as nerds many years getting used to keyboards and mice and working around, you know, keyboard shortcuts and memorizing workflows and what have you. I have never used anything other than a keyboard and mouse that is repeatable as an input method. Maybe, maybe, okay, maybe touchscreen. Maybe that's not fair. Maybe a touchscreen as well, multi-touchscreen. But I just think, you know, the stuff that's in my car, for example, the voice control that's in my car is just and has always been hot garbage to the point where you just don't even bother pressing the button on the steering wheel. Yep. Now, I know Apple have a bit better track record with human interface devices than the most, uh, you know, magic track pads, et cetera, et cetera. It remains to be seen, you know, just how good the eye tracking is. The early reviewers, you know, MKBHD and all that say it's very good, but it's a Gen 1 device. And let's look at the first iPad, the first iPhone the first Max. I mean, I wasn't around for that, but the you know the first gen of these products is always, always, always going to be heavily compromised in some critical area. We don't know what that is yet because it's only they've only shown us what they want us to see right now. Yeah, it's early days. But I do think as a paradigm shift, it's an incredibly interesting thing, and maybe not the Vision Pro itself. I'm talking in, you know, five, ten year time spans here. Because how long was it before the iPad was genuinely useful? I would say it was probably two, three, four years. Um, Yeah. And it could still use some improvement, to be honest. Yeah. The OS kind of stinks. Yeah. I mean, all that that hardware. You know, I just think how how amazing an iPad Pro running macOS would be. I always think that. You know, I just want VS Code. Mm -hmm. Like, genuine VS Code (laughs) or... A proper terminal or whatever. So, and you know, I just take my laptop and my my um, my iPad Pro from like 2015 is just relegated to being a movie tablet now, which is a, a crying shame. But so, you know, I think a couple of things. Uh, first, the positive. I, I it sounds like by all accounts they've really nailed the latency on this thing, which is the hardest bit to crack. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw this, Alex, but one of the ways that Al- Apple has reduced latency is they've literally fused the display on at the back of the video chip. So the display is built into the chip. So the front of the chip is the compute, and the back of the chip is the display. And they're fused together, so there is as little space for the data to have to travel as possible to just cut down on the latency as much as possible. I mean, I, I'm not an expert in this scenario, but, I mean, firstly, 
that's amazing. Secondly, how much latency does quarter of an inch worth of display cable add? I mean, maybe it's... I think it's one of those where it's like every single point in the system, you're trying to cut down the latency as much as possible to get it like under that 10 millisecond window. Marginal gains, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. But okay, so here's what I'm thinking. A lot of times Apple does this kind of stuff and the industry follows. Yeah. But there's there's one other company out there that's already kind of got a head start in this area in a lot of ways. I mean, imagine the Steam Deck on your face. Valve has this. I'm glad you took it. I'm glad you took this that way, that direction. Right? They've they've already got the Plasma desktop on the Steam Deck. I'm still using my Steam Deck. I'm actually still very happy with it as a product. I think the biggest thing it lacks is VR. But Valve has kind of hinted in interviews that it's a direction, VR is a direction they want to take the Steam Deck in a, you know, future iterations. I wonder if, if there is a use case for a a belt-mounted computer, you know, because a, a Steam Deck is ostensibly a gaming device, right? Whereas the Vision Pro is, I mean, the M2 is just a phone strapped to your face. Uh, well, not a phone, is it? It's a laptop strapped more, to your more face. More like a Mac, yeah. Yeah, wow. Uh, performance per watt is where Apple's silicon stuff, you know, their strategy is really starting to pay dividends now when you look at their product line. and uh, Their profitability per product must be, you know, I know their prices are high, but... Just the economies of scale, they're only making one chip. It's the M2 and then the M2 Pro, you know. But it's still the same thing under the hood. It's actually kind of amazing. But, um, yeah, I am worried about the the locked-down nature of iOS or Vision OS or whatever they're calling it. Because I know there's going to be things where I think, oh, I wish I could have this and that on the screen at the same time, and they're not going to let me for reasons. Because that's just the way Apple does stuff. Well, and you're not going to get access to the terminal, right? Like one of the things that makes the Mac a useful workstation is you can drop down to the terminal and you can use brew and you can install command line tools and you can use it like, like a Unix workstation. Even though they've tried their hardest to stop yeah. you doing that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we know about companies and their desires. There's a strategy tax for sure. I feel yes. like this whole week has been the corporate strategy tax week. Hasn't it ever? How has your week of no Reddit been going for you? Because it, it hasn't been great for me. Well, I'm not a professional content producer, number one, right? I mean, you know, I, we make this show, but uh, I'm not like you doing five shows a week uh, or more sometimes. It's not been too bad, actually. I've My muscle memory has gone to the space on my home screen where Apollo was. I've, I've you know, I've got my phone out of my pocket, you know, when I'm, my brain's on idle. As you do, you get your phone out of your pocket, you swipe to unlock it, you I'm just going to go for it. You hover <laughs> where the icon was, and in that split second, my brain goes, oh, okay, and I put it away. Yeah, for me, where I felt it the most is Google searches and stuff. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've accidentally just stumbled onto Reddit through Google search in the last week. I'm like, oh, dang it. You know, just trying to get the answer to something or look something up. Um, Google is a lot less useful without Reddit. And then to fill the time, I think I've spent more time on Twitter this week, which that's not good either. You're, you and your buddy Tucker, hey? Oh, boy. And I, <laughs> and I feel like, you know, this Reddit situation is never going to get better. Uh, the CEO appears to be doubling down on the strategy. The moderators aren't actually as impacted as the application developers themselves. Yes, the moderators lose some tooling, but they're really doing it mostly in solidarity. You know, it. On Monday, it was nearly 8,000 subreddits that went dark. Now it's about 5,000, according to Red Dark. Um, 
So I, I feel like it's all going to be for nothing. And that kind of makes me a little bummed too. I'm very glad that self-hosted is one of them. I, uh, I just don't feel like I can trust Reddit at all. You know, there was the whole debacle with um, them trying to slander Christian, the Apollo developer, saying he threatened them. And then he released the audio of the call, proving that he did not. And then Spez's um, retaliation, you know, quote unquote apology, which was anything but. And then the mm-hmm. link memo saying we're not affected. Don't wear Reddit mm-hmm. gear out in public. You know, we'll Steady weather as it goes. We'll weather yeah. this storm. You know, screw you. It'll blow over. It'll, it'll blow over. And like, if you look at the actual data, like Fuzzy Miss Bourne's just posted in, in the chat for us, um, you know, the, the comments and the views and post counts and all that barely even registered. If you consider that a huge portion of Reddit went down, it's kind of amazing. Like, where did these people find to actually comment? Hmm. Yeah, that's so it's barely even been a drop in the bucket, you're saying? The protest? Yeah, I mean, especially the fact. So it's like going on strike. You know, let's say you're a teacher or a nurse or a train driver or something, and you think, right, I'm going to go on strike, but I'm coming back to work on Wednesday. Yeah, and so there's no there's no actual consequence for Reddit. I mean, there is a two day blackout, and I I'm really glad to see that quite a lot of the subreddits have just continued to stay dark. I know it's a pain in the ass when you when you're googling something and you you want to find it. But there's always the cached function, which seems to work relatively well hmm. uh, for those times you need it. But it, it just goes to show, and this is a, a drum we've beaten many times on this show, we should not trust profit-motivated companies with our most precious resources, which in this case is is human knowledge. Community and human knowledge, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Reddit's kind of like this weird old-school internet thing, right, where you've got like all these moderators with their own communities and their own little fiefdoms that are actually doing a lot of the work for Reddit. That's just it. And then these developers that were using the API for free to build their app very old internet where they never really made money you know old internet sites like this never made money the contract was when i signed up for reddit in the tos we may sell your information and i'm like hmm, okay you know we may we may sell the, your air quotes work for advertising revenue or whatever whereas what they've done in the last week or two is they've turned it around and said we will. Tom, time has come to monetize, right? It's monetized time. Yeah. And so when I, when I go through this rationale of, of, of going through a, I don't know, a programming subreddit or the self-hosted subreddit, well, not that one because it's dark, but going through all of the comment threads and, you know, stuff like I might, I might drop some of my uh, knowledge in a comment thread or some of my experience or something like that because the social contract in my mind, at least, was with those other users. Reddit was just the vehicle. Whereas now Reddit has turned itself into this boogeyman, this this enemy that we can all unite against. You know, it's the uh, the Wall Street bets effect, I guess. And we're we're all so not so now. It's like now we're all thinking about the fact that there's this whole company and this CEO and this guy. I wasn't thinking about any of that before. I was thinking no. about the people on Reddit. And then the other thing is, kind of we've kind of entered this time where people are pretty okay to boycott. Right. So it doesn't take a lot to get people to just start stop using something. I don't think I'm going to be going back to Reddit for my casual browsing. I mean, I probably will still end up using it as Google searches send me there like they have this week. But I I went and I decided to check out Lemmy. And uh, Lemmy describe describes itself as a link aggregator and form for the Fediverse. 
It's similar to Reddit or Hacker News, where people submit stories and then, you know, the community votes on them. Only with Lemmy, you can run your own instance. And uh, it's kind of a mastodon in the sense that you could just follow across multiple instances, but there are niche communities like um, there's a couple of self-hosted communities, which would kind of be like the equivalent to a subreddit, only they're running their own community uh, on a, on a Lemmy instance. And so there's a couple of self-hosted ones that I'll link in there. I also I found a Star Trek one, you know, and it's kind of nice because they're still active, right? They're In fact, they're more active than ever right now. Uh, it's it's sort of one of those stories where a, an open source project started a while ago. Lemmy started in 2019 and just sort of has been building and building. And now it's moment of opportunity has kind of arrived. And it's like, hey, if we got the solution, it's kind of ready to go. You want to try it? And so it's seen a ton of uh, adoption. And, um, you know, there's a lot of communities that have been built in just like the last two weeks. And it seems like the technology under it's pretty good. I feel like we just executed this playbook for Twitter, didn't we? With Mastodon. I feel like we've just literally tried this exact thing. So in some ways, the timing of Reddit is kind of dumb because we've got the tools. We know that, you know, maybe not everybody from Twitter is going to come across to Masto, but, you know, a good chunk of people that I care about have moved over. That could be the situation again. And and maybe unlike Mastodon, you know, Lemmy's built on top of Rust and... TypeScript and Oh, so it's others. perfect for your LUP stuff that you've been doing as well. <laughs> it's AGPL. Um, they have a pre-built Docker Compose that's pretty sophisticated. And they also have a ready-to-go Ansible playbook so people can just deploy it pretty simply on their system. Uh, they got a pretty good mobile interface, but there's also a couple of well-known native Android and iOS apps that support it, which is kind of nice because that's mobile is one of the main ways I interact with Reddit when I'm doing it intentionally. It's got all the moderation abilities you want. You can tag stuff not safe for work, which is a which is a big controversy in all these Reddit clones. Um and they say they're aiming for high performance. The front end is 80 kilobytes when it's gzipped up. So when it loads down it's 80 kilobytes. And it they support using Raspberry Pis as the back end server. Like that's what they're one of the things they're architecting for. It's pretty nice. I would believe it looking at the Docker Compose file. So they're using Postgres for the database on the back end. And they've also got this interesting program called PictRS, which is a self-hosted, simple image upload server. And then they're hooking it. It's basically like Imager, but they're building it into the, the components that you have to host for Lemmy as well. That makes sense. And then you've got the Lemmy UI, which is just, I, I imagine, a web server. And then the actual um, Lemmy application itself. So it's really not too heavy, to be honest with you. It's, it's a pretty light-looking stack for what it's trying to do. And if you're familiar with Reddit at all, you will be right at home with any Lemmy instance. Now, if you want to go and find more Lemmy instances, so you don't, you don't actually have to spin your own up just to play around and have a look, which is kind of nice, you can go to join-lemmy.org slash instances. And over there, there's a list of some of the recommended ones. Um, I'll go to lemmy.world right now and have a look at the the top posts. You know, people talking about subreddit refugees and stuff, as you would expect at this time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> over there. But what I found really interesting as well, there's another website called the-federation.info. And over here, it 
this this website's goal is to document the projects and protocols and nodes and users of the federated internet, the Fediverse, right? And if we go into things at the top, right, at the top of their project list, you've got Mastodon, you've got Matrix, you've got Peertube, all the key players coming up hot and fast is Lemmy. And if we if you click on Lemmy and look at the graph they have to show the number of active users, up until last, uh, well, June 6th, they were tracking 88 Lemmy nodes. As of today, they've got 175 so it's more than doubled in a few days. I mean, as you would expect at this time, right? Yeah, you know, it's funny how these corporate corporate companies just don't even think about the Streisand effect that this sort of creates. I'd never even heard of Lemmy until Reddit had gone and done this and created this whole backlash. And then I started seeing people say, I'm going to Lemmy. And it took me a couple of days to be like, all right, I'll go check it out. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know, man, it might work for me. You know, Mastodon hasn't really stuck. Um, I Just because I'm kind of social media out. That's the way I feel, too. I realized that I must have been spending an hour cumulatively every day on Reddit. And, uh, you know, in the last few days, I just I haven't missed it. it. It's been a little frustrating, as I said, you know, come come across it on a Google search or looking for a particular product. You know, you type in um, best car wash shampoo Reddit. You always do that because Google itself is so full of SEO optimized crap these days that reddit felt like a refuge of actual human experience and uh mm -hmm. it's just a shame that that's gonna gonna go away so yeah now i'm just gonna switch to chat gpt <laughs> what could go wrong with that well speaking of chat gpt i see in the doc we've got uh, a new chat pad application hit me tell me about it well this is my compromise for using things like chat gpt is something that I host locally that sort of limits the data collection. And recently there's been a surge of these apps that you run and it interfaces with ChatGPT via the API. But this one's really touting itself as targeting premium quality design interface options. And I think they've actually gotten there. One of the things I really like about this, and it's it's like it's a it's a super basic Docker compose to get this thing up and running. You pop your API key in there. And then it's all self-hosted locally as far as like the data and information that it stores. You can store the conversations. You can tag them. You can generate prompts. So there's a few things I do a lot. Like I often will ask it to just summarize a story into bullet points, prefix those bullet points with an emoji that represents the content of the bullet point and then format the results in raw markdown. And then I can look at that and I can put that in a list and decide if that's a story I want to read later or not. And I'll just have ChatGPT crank through that kind of stuff for me. And, you know, the nice thing about this is I can just store that as a prompt. And so I can just hit that button and just boop. And I don't have to type it out every single time I'm going over to Chad and asking it for something. And the developers did a fantastic job of making it sharp and, and fast. And they also have created a desktop version, which I assume is just Electron. It seems really solid. And it's so simple to get going. I wonder if they have the Docker Compose. Yeah, they do. I have to show you this, Alex. You need an API key for something like this, though, I assume, right? You do. You do need the API key from uh, OpenAI because you're, you're not running the back-end stuff locally. You're just accessing ChatGPT over the API, but with some advantages. Um, your data is stored locally, and anything that gets sent over the API to ChatGPT is only stored for 30 days and deleted and is not used as a training data set 
So there's some better privacy retention policies if you're doing this over the API. Plus, like the conversations, you know how you get like the stored conversation in ChatGPT? That isn't stored on open API server. That's stored locally and organized on your system. I find it funny that we're talking about ChatGPT and the privacy implications right after we've just talked about Reddit, who one of the reasons they were saying they cited for doing this API nonsense, charging so much for it, was the fact that ChatGPT was was trained on human knowledge like Reddit. Yeah, I think OpenAI and Microsoft have made themselves a deal in hell. I think it's going to tear the two companies apart eventually, and it's going to squash a bunch of like projects inside Microsoft because of the amount of money they're now putting into OpenAI. And Sam Altman, I believe, is a big scammer. I just, that's my personal opinion, having looked into it. I think the guy, I think the guy is trying to sell a problem and a solution at the same time, and he's trying to freak everybody out. When really what he's done is he's created a large language model that says what you expect it to say, and it types it back like a 1980s computer. And so people find that kind of scary, and he's able to scare old dinosaurs in Congress who don't understand how technology works into thinking that AI is about to take over the world. And by the way, everybody's going to be bots. You won't be able to distinguish anything from AI. It's going to be horrible. All this misinformation online is going to be very dangerous. you got to regulate it right now. And since it's such a problem, I have this other project, this cryptocurrency that I just got a bunch of VC funding for over $100 million called WorldCoin. And WorldCoin will scan your iris and create a world identity for you for their world payment system and identification system. And then WorldCoin will verify that you're not a bot when you're online, as long as you're signed into the WorldCoin network with your iris that's been scanned. Oh, that sounds scary. Well, I'll pay everybody. So if you scan an iris, I'll pay you. And if you get your iris scanned, I'll pay you. And this coin that I've created out of thin air, and then we'll all be verified. So we don't have to worry about AI. That's literally Sam Altman. And I don't like ChatGPT for those reasons, but I have to recognize it is a useful tool. So I kind of look to protect myself by using some stuff that at least keeps some of the data out of their systems, because I think long term, they're a dangerous, bogus company who are trying to create a regulatory moat just so that way they can own a nascent industry and they're going to kill this thing in the bed. And they have a bad deal with Microsoft. There's just a big, big expose that came out that shows like all the conflict this this deal has created. Uh, Paul Thrott has more information on his website about that. I think it's a bogus thing. So I think inevitably we're going to be looking for large language models that we can self-host and run ourselves. And uh, this week, NextCloud announced the NextCloud Assistant project that's not ready yet, but it's essentially ChatGPT fully self-hosted that they're working on. Yeah, that does sound really quite impressive. I'm just going to circle back to the pricing just for a second. Do you have any idea, any sense, if you use this application, you know, every day for, I don't know, let's say a dozen different things, like roughly what would that end up costing you? Do you have any any idea? Well, I just blew through my free plan, so I'm going to find out. Oh. I, I, until now, it'd been on, it all been free. They got me hooked, you know. Um, I don't know if I'm going to pay. I, I'm going to look to see what my options are. There are more and more self-hosted options. There's also Bard. And things like that. Oh, yeah. It's really frustrating to watch because it's all basic functionality behind an API. You know, because what's tricky is if I look at the OpenAI pricing page, they have different language models at different price points. Yes. You know, so GPT-4, there's an 8K context and a 32K context, and it's 12 cents for one and six cents. Like, I have no idea what any of that means. I'm sure they do. They, They do a horrible job of explaining it on their pricing page why can I not just say pay a few dollars a month? Like all, all you can, all you can eat almost. They have like this pro plan. It's $20 per month. 
And I think along with a bunch of other things, it does give you more API calls, like a lot more API calls. Okay. Maybe Reddit should use those, eh? I, well, that was my <laughs> thinking, right? Is Reddit could just charge OpenAI and, you know, all the others one rate, one very high rate. So here's the thing about Reddit. I know, I know this whole episode, we're talking about everything else and Reddit all at the same time, but uh, they wanted $20,000 a month or something for Apollo, right? And uh, I, I would pay five bucks a month for Reddit, dare I say out loud. I mean, the amount of utility I get out of it. Would everybody else pay that? And, you know, the whole point of Reddit, like GitHub and all the, all these other guys, is the community aspect. And if everybody right. doesn't pay, then it doesn't work. You monetize the user. So the user subscribes. They get an API key. They put that API key into Apollo. And now they get access to Reddit. Yeah. It's I, I can't. This is Reddit. The Reddit leadership has to be just completely new. Right. They must like not have really ever done anything like this before. Maybe. They've been hanging out with Elon too much. Yeah, maybe. And that and Steve Jobs, also famous for promising to open things up and then shutting them down. But it, it does highlight, you know, the, the value of, dare I say, independent media such as ourselves, mm. where we're not beholden to any corporate agenda. And if you want to go and support Self-Host, you can go over selfhosted.show slash SRE. Boom. We'll put a link to Chatpad AI. That's the interface I've been using, Chatpad AI. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Oh, hey, by the way, we're actually going to start charging $1.7 million a month to listen to self-hosted. So oh, sure, you've yeah. got 30 days notice. Good job. See you later, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine? Just crazy. Yeah. Snapdrop. Now, this is, this is I, I set this up mostly for, for friends and family. Not, not so much for myself, but then I, I guess who ends up using it the most? <laughs> Me. <laughs> so it's called Snapdrop. It's been around forever, but I finally actually gave it a go. Have you ever used this? No, but I used AirDrop for the first time actually in the real world at the weekend. Oh, the real Apple thing. Yeah. Yeah. I was at the racetrack and someone took a picture of me in my car on the track and just a stranger who I'd never met. He walked up to me and said, I took a picture of you in your car. Do you want it? And I was like, yes, please. Because what's your email address? And I was like, that's an iPhone. Why don't we just do the AirDrop thing? And it worked. It was great. You get the full res that way too. You get the full res. Uh, yeah, if he emails it, they compress it. Um, so Snapdrop is AirDrop in the web browser. And so you, you get you set up a really basic, simple coordinator on a, a system that you run. And like, again, one of these Docker Compose things, super easy to do. And then you have two machines that are on the same Wi-Fi network. Browse that URL. Let's go to the server that you've set up. It's a little web server page. And it looks just like, like if Apple saw this, they would be upset because it looks just like the AirDrop UI only dark blue it's got the, the the floating heads on there and like the the radar scanning look oh, yeah. to it it really does yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and then but it works though so like you get two machines even the icon is the same yeah i know i i don't know how they get away with it but they've been doing it forever and it's simple you, you can just transfer files and what, what it's really doing on the back end is it's opening up a web rtc p2p session and WebSockets, and it's just doing that transfer directly, and it'll basically do it at line speed once it has the connection established. And it's a progressive web app. So I, in this example, I was able to send it between Android and iOS and Android and my desktop, and it worked really well. And it, again, it's like as fast as my Wi-Fi could take it, it would shoot it. And it took me probably one minute to get the SnapDrop server up and running. And then I was like, here you go. Now you want to, if you want to move files between your computers, just go to this and Make it really easy. That's amazing. 
Yeah. And it's the UI, what Apple got right with that UI is they made it really obvious and accessible and conceptualize it to like the thing about the, the way the radar like effect looks. My wife saw that and figured out herself. Oh, I probably need to be on the same Wi-Fi network, don't I? Because it's like looking for the network stuff, isn't it? Like, yep. And oh, yeah, I'll turn the Wi-Fi on. Oh, there it is. Okay. Then I tap, tap. Okay. Got it. It's amazing what our lady wives pick up through osmosis from us, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, little, like, probably, I got to imagine some scenarios similar. Little, you know, nice, well done UI. That's all it really takes. So snap, drop, and yeah, we'll have a link for that at selfhosted.show slash 99. Now, a little bit of shameless self-promotion here. You will know I'm a Volkswagen Golf enthusiast. I have the uh, Mark IV, 2004 Mark IV R32 uh, in deep blue pearl, or deep pearl blue, whatever. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes. I am unfortunately looking to sell the car. There'll be a link oh. in the show notes to the advert for said vehicle. Oh, I wish I could get that. Yeah, it's a wonderful car, but uh, priorities dictate racetracks are expensive mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, little change in priorities so if you're interested hit me up you know where to find me and uh it's probably time we did some feedback hey eh? yeah that, you know what if i were in the market i'd, I'd grab that car because i tell you what it's the, the, the move around here is you let alex buy something let him fix it up and then you buy it off him when he's done with it that's the move. we've dumped a lot of money into that car <laughs> and it is probably in the best condition it's been in in a decade to be yeah. honest with you but yeah so Ryan wrote in and he was looking either from us or from the brain trust out there in the community for some suggestions for self-hosting an NVR type DVR for security cameras that could possibly do license plate detection and maybe even OCR. And the thing to consider that might make it a little tricky is that he lives on a busy road next to an alley. He's downtown and he actually expects this is probably a tool he's going to need. Um, so if you have any suggestions, or Alex, I'm curious if you have any particular suggestions, the license plate detection on OCR bit is kind of where I'm, that's where I don't have, I don't really have any tooling that does that myself. There is a video from DigiBlur, you're probably familiar with his YouTube stuff, and uh, he is using Home Assistant in conjunction with several different projects in this video that there'll be a link to in the show notes to do automatic license plate reading um, using a Dahua, I think, D-A-H-U-A brand of camera. As I recall, it was a long time ago I watched this video. It, it kind of works. It's sort of, I mean, I, I don't know how useful it is genuinely having someone's license plate. I mean, if you, if you can freeze frame the video and read the plate, you can probably do the same thing with OCR or, well, what do they call it? License plate recognition software. But there is one particular one called Plate Minder, which I think is an interesting one, uh, which I'll put a link to in the show notes as well. And this is another another one that um, it states it's in very early stages of development. I've never actually used it because I, I live in a cul-de-sac, so I see about three cars a day go past my house, to be honest. So I'm not the target market for this. But if I lived on a busy road, I may well be. So uh, I would love, actually, some of the audience to try some of this stuff out if they live on a busier road or something like that. Now, there are probably some privacy implications depending on what state you're in in terms of recording people's cars and you, and actually storing this data. I, I'm i not an expert. I am not a lawyer on this stuff. It'd be funny to run this on the RV as I'm going down the road, have it hooked up to the Wise Cam, just capturing plates so I could keep track of everybody I've ever driven past. What could go wrong? Not creepy at all. Not creepy at all. Oh, crap. Wife's coming home. Look busy. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. 
I guess it would be nice to know maybe what he's thinking is he wants to figure out if somebody's a repeat visitor, you know, somebody's a problem. No, I, I really appreciate that that there are plenty of certainly valid use cases for this this uh, this stuff, but not for me personally. Tim wants to be his own Netflix for the whole family, and he says, would it be possible to set up a DNS server for my family that points all their traffic to a self-hosted reverse proxy on my network that would, that would then route traffic for each of the locations through a single IP? Obviously, I'm a little new to proxies, but I'm generally comfortable redirecting DNS traffic, and I'm unsure of whether a proxy would be able to take the traffic in through the WAN interface and change the Layer 3 info and then redirect it out the same WAN interface. So he wants to host a DNS server for his entire family, right? And I, I don't know if this is spanning multiple sites or not. It seems like a really horrible idea to me because you're introducing a single point of failure behind what I assume is residential grade internet for your family. And so if for whatever reason your ISP has an outage or there's a power outage or you, you know, you have a, a cat that stands on the cable in the back of your router... You know, there's a million things could go wrong in a, in a house. You're not a data center. Well, and just it's going to slam your internet connection. If you got even a couple of people watching your media collection at the same time while you're trying to download an ISO or something like that, you're not going to have any bandwidth. It's true. It's true. Because DNS, is, you know, it's not bandwidth intensive in the same way as streaming video would be. But the DNS. Right, but ultimately, that's what he's attempting to do is ultimately. He's trying to come up with a way to make it simple to stream them all video. They're canceling Netflix. They've got a big media collection. He wants to make that easy for them all to stream. He wants to do it with DNS and reverse proxies. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, are we trying to avoid using Tailscale, Tim? Because you could just put each one of these people on Tailscale. And I'll tell you the way I'd do it. If I were to build it today, I would, I would put the media playback infrastructure on Linode. And then I would tail scale it. I wouldn't put any of it on the public internet and I would put all of my family and I would put all of my systems on tail scale or I would set up a subnet router. If it's like a set top box and I can't put tail scale directly on it, I would put a subnet router on a machine and do it that way. And you could use magic DNS if you want, or just use IPs and I don't care. I don't care how you do. You could put pie hole in the tail scale network and just do it all that way. You're not going over the public internet that way. It's handling all the routing for you, all the mesh VPN stuff you might need, all the all the NAT stuff. The IPs will remain static. And you could just run like Jellyfin or something on a, on a lino that's going to be able to take that bandwidth from everybody watching at once. And then you could even take advantage of like watch together features and stuff. Yeah, that's just it. I mean, the, there is some, I think, confusion in the question about what the, what the various stages are that are required. And uh, I'm not terribly sure where dns even comes into this to be honest with you uh the more i read it so for me i'd probably do what chris is suggesting you either host it on a linode or a vps somewhere or host it on a machine in your network and then use tailscale to share, to share that machine out to friends and family if you don't want to open any ports in your firewall uh use something like a plex or a jellyfin or an mb or well yeah those are those are the three big ones really aren't they and you know the thing is with tailscale i mean you could also do it with, uh, uh, you could do this with Nebula. It'd be a lot more manual. There's other things. It's tail scales the way I've solved this, and it works really well because there's iOS apps, there's Android apps. And a really nice thing about tail scale too is you can use their magic DNS. So when yeah. all of your clients are connected to your tail net, you can, I mean, I've got a YouTube video on this exact topic. So if, you, if you're if you interested in that, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but what you can do is when your family's 
phones or TV set boxes, and uh, not all set-top boxes will support TailScale. That's worth noting. Uh, Android ones will, but the apps kind of, I don't know, doesn't seem to work terribly well. And for iOS, Apple TVs, it doesn't exist, as far as I know. But in the next Apple TV OS, they are adding VPN support. Da, 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 da. Oh, great. Lovely, yeah. Fully loaded Apple TV boxes coming your way soon. Woo! TV! <laughs> iOS on the TV with the VPN. Yeah, and I think that would make it a lot simpler. But a subnet router would solve that problem. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, Yeah, I, I, maybe we misunderstood, Tim, but let us know if that makes sense to you. And uh, you can... Uh, you can send your feedback or questions into the show at selfhosted.show slash contact, or you can send a boost like Trey Fort Ham sent in 64,352 sats. He is our baller booster. Says, I've listened to self-hosted from episode one and the Jupiter network in general as far back as when the network was bought and then eventually sold back to Chris. Either way, I just wanted to show my support by my first boost to self-hosted after setting up Albie. Love the show, although sometimes I feel like I've heard about the topics on the show already. I enjoy Chris and Alex's take on self-hosting. Thanks again for a great show, guys. Imagine how we feel making the show, sir. Sometimes. He he also sent us his zip code with a boost, which looks like he's coming in from Dexter, Georgia. Is that what? Yeah, right? Yeah, lovely. Near rents? Interesting. You know, the craziest, coolest places people come in. Uh, We do the top four boosts, and uh, Jack Off is our number two. With 48,160 sats from the podcast index. Looks like I finally figured out how to boost. I've been listening for a couple of months and I appreciate all the content you guys produce. Thank you, sir. And uh, self hosting his life comes in with a row of McDucks, 22,222 sats. First time booster, longtime party member. Look at all these first timers this week. Love the show and I want to keep supporting the quality content. I just noticed that the Privacy Security and OS Int podcast is doing a series of episodes on self hosting. It's great to see the recognition of this importance outside of just self-hosted show. Crossing my fingers for a crossover episode. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should get on that. But uh, I think just, you know, what we talked about at the top of the show, you know, the Reddit stuff, the Twitter stuff, there's been a couple of major punches this year to people's social media psyche, waking them up. As I mean, true. You know, and then there was the Google thing last year, yep. the Google Photos the, with thing. With that account getting shut down. And then you saw the Lewis Rossman video this week, I take it, with the whole... But with Alexa. Yeah, cancel. Amazon <laughs> shutting down that guy's account because the driver reported him for saying something racist, which actually ended up just being a misunderstanding. We've ended up in some kind of weird, horrible, dystopian version of what the internet could have been, unfortunately, and driven by corporate profit, of course. But what, uh, what seems so strange to me is why not, since these are your customers, like this guy, he was like a super Amazon customer. He bought every smart home stuff they had. Why not? Or, you know, a lot of it. He, by the way, also clarified later on he had Raspberry Pis, and he was able to control his stuff without the Alexas. But, like, why wouldn't they just default to just disabling shipping? And, like, with Google... um. If they thought he had child porn in his Google photos, instead of shutting down his 15-year-old Google account and automatically transferring it to the police and then sending a copy to Google staff to review, why not just shut down his photos account, flag his account, and set it up for review? Just disable photos. Amazon could have just disabled deliveries. Google could just disable Google photos and then review the account and proceed further after if the claim seems legitimate. But instead, it's like they go to 11. They go to, you are absolutely guilty and you will be immediately served your punishment. You will be thankful and lucky if you can get a review and get our attention. 
and it's 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 just so it's so customer hostile and it's such bad publicity it fundamentally undermines our trust in these cloud services and it could be moderated significantly just with that simple step of just dialing back and making the reaction a little more reasonable disabling deliveries i mean you could always just start at defcon 5 you don't have to go straight to defcon 1 do you come on seems like it i uh, Gene Bean's our last boost this week at the top four for 4,096 sats. He says, I'm excited to see what 45 drives creates. Me too. And we will be yeah. checking in with those guys regularly. So don't, don't worry about that. I've been reflecting on that too. And thinking, thinking more and more, like I could see JB is also in that space that they may be targeting. Well, what else is there? I mean, if you want to build your own box, you've got to buy a chassis that can hold half a dozen hard drives of which there's only really a couple I can think of that aren't astronomically expensive. You know, there's the Rose Will, what's, what is it, LSV 4500 or something. Or you could buy an old anchor case that has five and a quarter inch drive bays in the front and then get some drive sleds for that or a fractal case, but they're not hot swappable. I could go on, right? There's just mm. no good options unless you are building a data center or want to buy a Synology. There's not, not really anything in between. We've we've looked at a few options on this show. There's the UNAS, but build quality of that wasn't great, and the thermals were awful. Um, yeah, so bring it on. Let's see what they uh, see what they're cooking up there in the the northern wilds of Canada. Here, here. Thank you, everybody who supports the show uh, by boosting in. We we received 183,758 sats total from 11 boosters across 12 boosts. And thank you to our members who also support the show directly at selfhosted.show slash SRE. As a thank you to you, you get the ad-free feed and a little extra content. You get the post show. That is selfhosted.show slash SRE to support this show directly or all the shows and get them all ad-free at jupiter.party. And we promise we won't charge you for API access if you uh, subscribe. <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll, we'll include the members in on that deal. That's, you know, that's how you goose the membership is maybe we... So we create the JB API, we charge a ridiculous amount for it, and then we give the members a kickback, you know, and then they go out there and they promote it for us. They become our sales force. Mm -hmm. I'm liking the sound of that. We should be the new CEO of Reddit with yeah. this kind of lodging. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. we'd turn things around. How is Linux Fest Northwest shaping up, by the way? It's good. We got a slight extension of the call for papers. I think it's till June 25th, if I'm remembering off the top of my head. So if you want to have a, and oh man, we should have some really good self-hosted talks there. Something about any, come on. If you haven't done it yet, get out there. Uh, go to Linux Fest Northwest. They got a link for the call for speakers. I think you got a little bit more time by the time you're hearing this. But yeah, it's coming along, man. It's, I'm getting, I'm kind of starting to get excited. It's like, starting to feel real as I'm hearing from people that are coming out and they're asking about hotels. They're asking about like, you know, can we do dinner? Like those things are starting to happen. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Are you going to have uh bring your own cow? You know, <laughs> <laughs> we should, we should we need, just get we... like a big rent, a big grill. Right. And <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So if you've never submitted a paper to a conference or anything like that, I implore you to consider it. And if you'd like some advice on, you know, topics or whether you think what you want to talk about is suitable, I'm on the Discord. Reach out to me, Alex KTZ over there. I'd be more than happy to encourage you through that process. It doesn't have to be the entire concept or paper either. No. Or, or speech. You can have the idea of what you want to talk about. You can have the general outline. It's sort of the MVP. And then you have until uh, October to uh, finish it up, get it ready for a presentation. You want to know something absolutely insane, Chris? What's that? It's going to be episode 100 next time out. No. Is that possible? 
somehow. Maybe we should do something special. Maybe we should have some hmm. special boosts or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. That would be a great episode to give us a special congratulate 100,000 sap boost for 100 episodes. Um, maybe we should do like, uh, like the worst idea I ever had was like do an episode of Linux Unplugged around a Star Trek episode. You know, we could do something like that where we just completely go off the rails and jump the shark and wreck the show for episode 100. We'll just talk about uh, old <laughs> Top Gear. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Maybe we'll play a few like clips, and, you know, like sit there and just chat about the esoteric aspects of the show. People would love that, Alex. Caravan Conquers. You know, it's a lost era of TV. <laughs> <laughs> Selfhosted.show slash contact is the place to go to get in touch with us. And you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger if it's still there next week. Yeah, who knows? Uh, I'm over there, I think, at Chris LAS. And you can join me in the Fediverse on Matrix, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Matrix. As always, thank you so much for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 99. So there is a sneaky little loophole that car makers are starting to exploit so in 2012 a law passed that said if a car has a code reader the consumer who owns the car should be able to read those codes and they had to open it up which man i use that literally every day <laughs> because i have a i have i have something that is actually installed on the volvo that's constantly monitoring stuff and then i also have a code scanner for the rv i've got one for the cars right like i know you use it I use it all the time. So just at the racetrack, just this weekend, it was a 28 degrees Celsius day. So what's that? 85-ish Fahrenheit, I think. It's getting warm. And, you know, I'm belting around the track in my little golf. By the way, there was a Porsche Club event at the track this weekend. And there's me and my little VW keeping (laughs) up with the Porsches. It was actually amazing. The best feeling in the world is lapping a Porsche in a 25-minute session. (laughs) <laughs> on a two-minute lap. Anyway, um, I use something called a Cobb access port, which plugs straight into my OBD2 port, and it does uh, data logging of, of things like intake air temperature, oil, gear, gearbox temperatures, you know, all, all that stuff. And so I logged that for every session, and I found that in the mornings when the temperature was sort of uh, sort of 15 to 20 degrees, the car was just about coping. But then after lunchtime, where I had more of my sessions... Uh, where it was hotter in the day, the engine knock sensors were starting to have to pull ignition timing because it was it was just it wasn't overheating, but it was just there was too much heat for it to cope with. It couldn't disperse the heat, and so right. mm. based on the information I can pull from the OBD2 ports, uh, I now know that I should probably fit a new intercooler to my Golf in order to stop it exploding on track someday. You know, that's very useful, isn't it? And I love being able to do that to to spend. I don't love spending money, although this show might <laughs> suggest otherwise sometimes. But when I do, I like to have a good reason, not just, yeah, I think I need a new intercooler. No, mm-hmm. I know. I know I need one. Yeah. Being able to pull that data and watch that data and understand good and bad results from that data really was the difference between me confidently driving over mountain passes and consistently panicking that i was about to blow out the engine in the rv the best part was uh this weekend like all the porsche guys were looking at the data i was taking they were like you can do that <laughs> and i'm like yeah you can't right there. <laughs> no no porsche's all locked down but uh vw my little plucky vw did great what kind of stuff can you monitor in the rv then i imagine you've got a lot of that you know you can a lot of the like trans temp oil temp intake temp uh, a lot of the, just the standard, a lot of the Ford trucks just give you a lot of 
information about that and loads around all that kind of stuff. Uh, more than I can get out of the Golf, actually. Really? I get a lot more than I, yeah, yeah. And a lot more than I get out of the Volvo, too. Which The Volvo. Yeah. So that's not awesome. But so in the 2012 law, there's this little loophole that says if it's wireless, because like nobody used wireless back then, you don't have to give consumers access um, if there's safety issues. And so vehicle manufacturers have come together with like these advocacy groups and these lobbyist groups to claim that giving consumers wireless access to the wireless OBD2 system would be dangerous because they claim, and I'm not even making this up, that drivers that had an open wireless diagnostic port would be subject to sexual predators and racists who would use the data to stalk them. What? Yeah. And so, and then because this law says vehicle manuf, this is a quote from the law, or actually this is a quote from the NHTSA that's saying we've got to change this. Vehicle manufacturers appear to recognize that vehicles with open remote access telemetrics required by the data access law would contain a safety defect. Federal law does not allow a manufacturer to sell vehicles if it knows it contains a safety defect. So the manufacturer, like, look, this is a safety defect. You're going to get domestic abuse and racist if we turn this on. That's a safety issue. We can't knowingly sell this with a safety issue, so therefore we have to turn off access to the consumers. That is brilliant. They're not. We're not going to get access to the OBD2 stuff when they go wireless, and which, which I assume all EVs will use, and you know all the new cars. Can you imagine? being in the board meeting where your lawyers came in and suggested that yeah you'd have got so many slaps on the back saying oh good job well done well coming up with that idea brilliant i mean that that is some boris johnson level yeah. uh, contortion of the truth right there my goodness it's, I'm, just, it's, I'm so upset because like the shops are really going to take the brunt of this and consumers that like want to take their car in to get like my volvo just to keep bringing it up again but in the manual and stuff, there are literally things that it can say, yeah, if this is wrong, we designed this to not be serviced by you. It's only been designed to be serviced by a shop. The car has to be up in the air. And they just build it that way. They just build yeah. stuff that is designed for you not to be able to repair. And this is just going to be another in incarnation of that. And it just doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's not car culture. It's not what we need as consumers. We need things we can repair. We can we, have supply chain shortages and we can't get access to the stuff. And we need the ability to repair them directly. Like we've just seen this happen like a year ago. Makes me want to just become vice grip garage man and, and just have sparkleters and making happeners. Right. And <laughs> work on the stuff where you can just look at it and know what it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say like looking at some of those engine bays at those Porsches this weekend, like there's just, they're so tightly packed in there. Like I don't, I, it, they're a masterpiece of engineering. No, no doubt whatsoever, but. How on earth do you come up with sexual predators and racism based off of the data from an OBD2 port? Well, that's uh, the uh, the way they do it, right, is the car makers work with this lobbying group and this lobbying group comes up with uh, the ads and what, you know, how to spin it and all of that. Now, uh, they had a whole website up that, that covers it all, but they had to take it down after Lewis Rossman made a video about it, but... They made a whole commercial that it's like it, it's it's following a blonde woman. She's in a dark, dimly lit parking lot at night. And the camera shot is such to give you the impression that somebody is following her. And it says paid for by the Coalition for Safe and Secure Data. <laughs> That's what and they so call please tell me. Please tell me how that, you know, maybe what these guys should do. 
she wouldn't be in that parking garage if she didn't own a car. So maybe they shouldn't be allowed to sell cars full stop. Maybe hmm. we should invest in public transport. That's or true. Cars do get in accidents. That's not safe. Build cities that don't require driving everywhere. What a concept. 